Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4005 of the Bugle, audio newspaper for an invasively visual world. For the week beginning Monday, the 21st of November 2016, with me, Andy Zaltzman, here live in London, which is in Europe, or is it? I guess we'll never know now. And joining me from one of the Bugle's less used continents, Asia, talking to us live from a brand new Bugle location, Singapore. It's a brand new Bugle co-host, one of India's finest comedians, scriptwriters, playwrights, javelin throwers, high-wire circus acts, dolphin impersonators, and lake volume estimators. That got progressively less true as it went along, like a satirization of the history of American presidential election campaigns. It is the Mumbai mirthmaker himself, Anu Vabpal. Hello, Andy. Hello. Um, all those things are true, Andy. All those things, the ja- javelin being probably one of my better known achievements over comedy writing, right. but yes. Well, what's your what's your personal best for the javelin? I've thrown it some distance. Um, right. <laughs> now, automatically, it goes to show that given I don't know what distance that is, I'm probably taught a well-known athlete but but I do know that <laughs> but but like you said you know as a mirth maker and a javelin thrower and all those other things I said I, I think I I truly qualify as a renaissance javelin thrower if nothing else <laughs> because I don't know how many how many people in history that we, we could point to that threw javelins and were in Singapore at the same time <laughs> and also I mean just the, the mere fact of claiming that you could throw a javelin some distance, but you're quite high up the list of all-time greatest Indian Olympic athletes, I think, doesn't it? I think so. I think, I think if you want to be an Indian Olympic athlete in javelin, the fact that you have a javelin and you've thrown it should qualify <laughs> as a significant achievement. Uh, so welcome, uh, welcome to The Bugle. It's uh, great to have you on the show. You are uh, our official Bugle rest of the world correspondence uh we've got britain and the u.s covered but uh, you are basically all over the rest of it and uh, currently in in singapore anything anything to report from from singapore yes well several things well andy it's a pleasure and honor to be here and i'm glad you have one rest of the world correspondent because you know <laughs> uh, the rest of the world and europe and america it's about the same size so, right. oh, yeah. so I think the rest of the world does not deserve more than one. Um, <laughs> and the way politics in the world is going, you know, uh, philosophically, morally, even geographically, I think the rest of the world deserves only one person. Um, <laughs> and if only this could be replicated in, say, corporations around the world where they would, they would just have a head of North America, say, for Pepsi, and ahead of North America for Europe, and ahead of the rest of the world. I think one of the things that Trump has shown us is that we've broken up the world too much. There's too much known. And I think now, just lesser, just being able to somehow summarize things. I think, I think Andy, you're on the right track, I think. So, basically, you're, pra- you're praising Trump for reducing the world back to a, a basic simplicity of America... Vladimir Putin and everyone else. Other places. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. I guess that does rather simplify things. I think so. I think so, Andy. And just, just this, this whole specificity of countries and cultures and capitals, I think, as, as Mr. Trump has shown us, that they're overrated, you know? Um, very soon, instead of saying, <laughs> I've been to China, I know the Chinese, if he says, I've been to the rest of the world, and this is what they think. <laughs> And I think you, you've spearheaded that. Trump hasn't even got his team together, but you've already organized the world 
through the bugle. The bugle is now yeah. just ahead of what will now happen in transition teams in politics. Well, that's a great British tradition of uh, basically seeing it as us and everyone else. Uh, so this is Bugle 4005 for the week beginning Monday, the 21st of November 2016. Now less than 98 months until we can be sure that Donald Trump is no longer president. So uh, tick-tock, tick-tock. On this day in 1877, Thomas Edison uh, announced the invention of the phonograph, a machine that could record and play sound, without which this show in particular would be a very, very different beast. Just be me wandering around, knocking on people's front doors saying... Can I interest you in some lies? I really need to get them <laughs> off my chest. Uh, we're recording on Friday the 18th of November. On this day in the year 1307, apparently, the Swiss archery ace William Tell uh, apparently shot an apple off his son's head with a crossbow. Uh, also on this day, Mrs Tell supposedly said, you better have a f***ing good explanation for this, Bill. Uh, and it's Mickey Mouse's birthday. I don't know if, uh, if, you, uh, if you know that, Anuvab, today, uh, well, uh, Friday the 18th of November. Is considered to be Mickey Mouse's birthday, and uh, well, there are rumours that the legendary celebrity cartoon mouse could be considering a run for the US presidency in 2020. And I never thought I'd say this, but stranger things have happened in American politics. Uh, tomorrow, Saturday, is both International Toilet Day, treat yourself, everyone, and also International Men's Day, which does not entirely set itself apart from every single other day in human history. As always, a section of the Bugle is going straight in the bin. This week, a uh, celebrity clothes section. Um, after the dress that Marilyn Monroe was wearing when she sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President, to John F. Kennedy, sold at auction this week for $4.8 million, we look at some other celebrity historical uh, garments. Uh, that Monroe dress, of course, largely responsible for what uh, still remains and will, will remain for a couple of months at least, the stonkingest presidential boner in US history. That record's set to be broken on the 20th of January when Donald Trump first goes into the Oval Office and looks at himself in the mirror. Uh, other famous celebrity clothes we tracked down uh, for this week's ep uh, episode, going straight in the bin, uh, Francis Drake's bulge trousers from when he was told that the Spanish Armada was armadering its way to England in uh, 1588, unlaundered, um, and there are some suggestions he wasn't quite as confident as he made out at the time. Uh, Cleopatra's very avant-garde snake bra that she sadly died in. Her last words apparently were, can you tell the designer to maybe use dead snakes next time, or at, less, or at least less bitey, less poisonous live snakes. Sure, I do feel sexy, but I also feel dead. And we also uh, find the T-shirts Alexander Hamilton was wearing at his fatal duel with Vice President Aaron Burr in 1804, which had specially printed at a T-shirt printing shop in Manhattan the previous day, with the words, Aaron Burr, VP, verifiably perished. Uh, and on the back, a cartoon of Hamilton as a golfer, smiling with the slogan saying, I just scored a bird eye. Uh, he was going to tear off uh, his shirt and run to the press with his T-shirt showing what he won, but sadly, of course, uh, lost and died. And also, we look at the special necklace worn on her wedding day by Henry VIII's sixth wife, uh, Catherine Parr. A wife number six, that necklace, thought to be the widest necklace ever, measured eight inches from the top, just under her chin, to the bottom, at the top of her collarbones. It was made of reinforced granite, tungsten and Kevlar. Uh, that is a weird necklace, darling, Henry VIII said, as they gazed into each other's eyes on their wedding night. Uh, yep, 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 it, 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 is, it is, I acknowledge that it is, but you are a weird husband, she replied. Are you going to take it off? He asked. Nope. No, I'm not going to take it off.
that section in the bin and also in the bin a quick bugle audio mannequin challenge there we go we've done our bit So before we get on to this week's top story, we'll just check the uh, current British stropometer reading. Uh, that's 8.4 this week. That's a bit less of a crank than we've been in for most of the year. US, that's coming in at 12.6. Uh, that is good news for the new cantankerousy that is taking over the political world. Uh, Anuvab, how stroppy, by comparison with Britain and America, how stroppy is India right now? Um, is very a number? Very... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, going with the javelin thing, I've been very specific with measurement today, Andy, as you know. Uh, <laughs> very, very is, is, is what I'm going with. So, you know, as the rest of the world correspondent, you know, it's, it's my responsibility to, to look for problems around the world far and wide. So I've traveled, being based in India, I've traveled far and wide to find that the biggest problem in the world was in India. <laughs> um, <laughs> So again, again, that that goes to show the reach and diligence of my world travels, and I found it right outside my house. In that, the <laughs> the nation has has this nation of a billion people, uh, which some people have heard of. I don't know if all the people in the world know what India is, but <laughs> some people may have heard of it. Um, it uh, they outlawed currency. They have outlawed. <laughs> All currency. All currency. 86% of, of, I mean, of course, uh, you know, any economist listening to this will obviously dispute that, but they will also realize that that this is pretty much nonsensical banter, just loosely based (laughs) on facts. But that's also the rest of the world, I think. So I think we're only following a pattern. Um, So 86% of the currency in use has been uh, just uh, overnight uh, cancelled, withdrawn. And then that raises many questions. Can you do that? Can you, can you, and anyone in the world, can they do that? Can you, for example, in Great Britain, the country you, you, you are in, could somebody just uh, say from tomorrow, the 10 pound note, the 50 pound note and the 100 pound note are invalid and now just, (laughs) uh, just make do. (laughs) It is a truly extraordinary story, this. I mean, I I think in Britain we'd, I mean, we'd probably quite happily take that on um, because, I mean, we, you know, it would just get us further away from Europe, which has currency. And, you know, if we could get rid of currency or at least go back to, you know, to basic kind of pig-based economy that we used to be quite happy with until the Romans came over here with their coins, um, I think we'd be happy with this. This is one of the most extraordinary stories that I can remember <laughs> reading about in all our years on the bugle. What happened is Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, uh, he, he pulled a genuine political rabbit out of the hat. And in this age of leaks, that is quite surprising. No one seemed to be expecting this. And it was one... I mean, he pulled his rabbit out of the hat, and the rabbit had bloodshot, terrified eyes. <laughs> but it was still a rabbit. And he announced that he was withdrawing the two most used banknotes in India from circulation, the 500 rupee and the 1,000 rupee notes, roughly equivalent to the classic British banknotes, the fiver and the tenor. And he announced this in an unscheduled broadcast on the evening of the 8th of November. And this law came into effect at midnight that night. (laughs) Now that is... I mean, that is quite... To basically pull, as you say, all currency, 86% of it, but we're rounding it up for for the ease of mathematics, all currency, basically all currency out of circulation in a uh, four-hour time frame. That is, in a country where 90% of all transactions still take place using cash, that is 
bold stuff. That is, I mean, I guess the kind of stuff you would expect from a prime minister who quite a lot of people in India think is a borderline genocidist. But, uh, you know, he's clearly not lacking in confidence. How has this gone down, Anuvab, the sudden withdrawal of 86% of all physical money? I think the biggest problem, Andy, is that Indians uh, are having to stand in queues in an orderly fashion. And... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> India not being Singapore, uh, because, you know, any culture that's that's used to any sort of system, uh, you know, is, is used to queues. But now uh, Indians having to form an orderly queue, there are two problems with that. One is every time there's a queue in India, there's one thought in an Indian person's head. <laughs> Who do I bribe? <laughs> the great irony here, however, Andy, is that you need to stand in the queue to get to the money to bribe someone. So what we're dealing <laughs> with here is a philosophical conundrum. <laughs> what we're dealing with here is almost Aristotelian in its in its appeal and reach. Because, you know, that which is, is also is not, I think, is one of the Greek philosophers' <laughs> questions of our time. And I think that that is what has been posed here. I mean, there's, of course, you know, there's, of course, a lot of talk uh, in India, in the business circles, you know. is luckily, luckily, you know, we, um, I mean, I don't know where you got your statistics from, but luckily, India is not a poor country that survives entirely on cash where 500 million people are not literate. Luckily, that is not the case. (laughs) I mean, what you're looking at is sort of a digitized 21st century lethal economic behemoth. That's what you're looking at. Uh, So so we were already on the edge of stuff. But the big question was, can we be Sweden overnight? Right. Lots of Indian business people would ask, can we be Sweden overnight? And I think one man needed to get up and said, let's try. (laughs) <laughs> right. So, and I think I think he just took it quite literally, and he said, "Let's try." Now, <laughs> now they did. There is a very large unorganized cash sector, right? But is it really that important? I mean, because you have to ask yourself: three hundred million people eating and having access to basic supplies. What is the big deal about that? <laughs> Why is that critical? You know, and I think well, that that is that's learned behavior, isn't it? That was basically the attitude that the British Empire had to India during major famines, isn't it? I, I've got found this amazing quote from the great famine of the 1870s. Now, you are an eminent historian and you've done uh, uh, stand up shows about uh, Indian history and uh, the, the history of you know, Britain in India. I was reading about the Viceroy of India, Lord Lytton. Um, who during the Great Famine of the 1870s, uh, when Britain exported over 300,000 tonnes of wheat from India whilst more than 5 million people starved to death, um, he, he believed that apparently market forces alone would suffice to feed the starving Indians. Now, that is, I mean, 140 years on, the world is really still sticking pins in that theory to try and see if they can make it work. But that is... Uh, Correct. Well, maybe Correct. that's... I mean, this, the, the, the legacy of that attitude has clearly informed this demonetization. Exactly, exactly. And I think there's, there's some agile thinking there. You know, like Lord Lytton was onto something when he said, you know, if the ship stops here, there would be grain for people. But if the ship doesn't, can they still eat? Even though there's no food. Let's see. <laughs> so I think it's a fundamental uh, question of market forces when the market forces that are given to you are nothing, right? <laughs> 
Because Adam Smith in economics, has, you know, in The Great Economist, had always said, zero is not a great number. You can't do much <laughs> with zero. Um, I may be paraphrasing, but he said something like that. Zero is not a very high quotient in economics. I think they're challenging <laughs> Smith. I think they're saying, mm, let's see. Let's see. Um, if you've got no money because I've outlawed everything, apart from selling your cousin for some rice, what other <laughs> innovative methods can you come up with? That's the question India has to grapple with. Well, it's basically challenging the Indian people to grasp the baton of 21st century entrepreneurialism. So, you know, it's, if, if you can't rely on hackneyed old banknotes and you have to develop your own cousin for rice-based economy... That will give you a head start on on everyone else in the world. Precisely, Andy. Precisely, you've you've really hit it. It's it is it is a startup economy. You know, uh, I'd read a thing about Silicon Valley once, and they had said that a startup needs to be hungry, and I think Mr. Modi has taken that literally. <laughs> <laughs> I think that if you if you're a startup, if you, who is the entrepreneur? You're the entrepreneur. You're starving. <laughs> You're not just starving to build Facebook. You're literally starving. So what would you come up with to change things? And I think that, that really there was always potential among a billion people. But the only way you could find that potential was to just make their bank accounts invalid. And I think that, that there's really no truer test of a person. And I don't think nudity. Like a lot of people think what is the most shameful thing in the world? Being found nude in public, right? Um Happened to me a couple of times. I wouldn't want to get into it in further detail. <laughs> Happened in several countries where I'm not allowed. Well, those are some stories we're going to have to get to. But, but that's a different problem, Andy. But the point you raise, a very valid point, extremely valid, which is there's no greater test than saying, just like Lord Lytton did, I'm just going to take this bank account from you. You were not expecting this. This has never happened in human history. But now that it has, what are you going to do with yourself? You know, is, are, you going to, are you going to put that shoe in the microwave? Um, are you going to use your child uh, to do some manual labor? Are you going to grow your own tomato? Um, what, what, how resourceful are you? And it really makes you think back, really, to, to the days of the first Egyptian people by the Nile. You know, um, They'd have to come up with stuff, right? They were like, okay, I guess this is a seed. I don't have any plowing equipment. Um, what should I do? Let me see. Can I just use this human being as transport? You know, you start really <laughs> thinking on your feet. And I think that's what's happening here. So basically you're saying that just need to give it, you know, five or six months and there'll be some massive pyramids all over India. <laughs> I, think, I think so. I think so, Andy. They, they, they would, I think you're right. I think uh, what you've unleashed is per perhaps the precursor to the Emperor Akhenaten I. <laughs> <laughs> Googlers who haven't followed this story will now give you, you know, a, a quick multiple choice question as to how this whole transition from having 500 and 1,000 rupee notes to not having them at all. How did that go? Was it A, everything went smoothly, people said, what a fun idea, I hated having legal tender burning a hole in my pocket anyway, or was it B, total chaos? And before you answer that... Please bear in mind that India's default setting, and I've been to India on several occasions now, and I've seen this firsthand, it's default setting at the best of times, through no real fault of its own, being a nation of uh, over one billion people, is total f***ing chaos. <laughs> uh, correct, the answer was B, total chaos, and even more total chaos than usual. If 
you can get more than total. Uh, massive queues at banks, general mayhem, some fatalities. Apparently some people uh, were unable to pay for medical treatments because what they thought was money to pay for that medical treatment had become, in the time it took Narendra Modi to have dinner after his special broadcast, had become not money, but toilet paper. So they could no longer pay for it. And of course, the people worst affected by this, uh, again, any guesses? Yes, it is the poor. That is another loss in the results column for the poor, still way off form economically. Uh, and some breaking news, the Indian government is going to collect all the defunct banknotes, mulch them up with some wallpaper paste, and build a giant papier-mâché sculpture of Narendra Modi's extended middle finger to travel around rural <laughs> India. Now, the reason for this, because I mean, it might seem out of context, why on earth would you take out 86% of all the money, <laughs> all the physical money in a country? It was a, uh, an attempt to clamp down on corruption, uh, the, the so-called, you know, the black economy, uh, which, I mean, corruption is more so even than cricket, India's national sport. Um, and unlike cricket, not only are you good at it at home, but you, you, know, you carry your form overseas in a way that the cricket team simply doesn't. There's been... But, but is this, Anuvab, is this really an effective way of clamping down on corruption in India? Because it seems to me, as, as an outsider, that withdrawing medium-denomination banknotes as a, med- as a means of reducing Indian corruption is roughly equivalent to beginning your New Year's diet by taking a slice of gherkin from a two-pound gut-buster burger. It is to me like the captain of the Titanic standing on the prow of his ship, pointing a hairdryer at the iceberg, shouting, everything is under control, feel the heat, you overblown Cornetto, if I may exaggerate slightly, which I may, it's 2016, exaggeration is, is allowed. In fact, you know, exaggerations have a grain of truth. They'll probably be phased out of all political discourse in the next electoral cycle. It, it seems an odd way to go about addressing this enormous problem. Andy, I think I think it's a great point, Andy. And as a, as, a, as a website, as an Indian news website called First Post pointed out, Narendra Modi has just burnt down a whole forest to find two or three snakes. Um, <laughs> and I th- Very nicely put. And I think that, that that's, that's one way to do it. You know, that is one way to do it. Um, you see, one of the things that the government was hoping, which we're really known for in the world, was that this would go with Germanic precision. Um, <laughs> that is, that, that I mean, from my really trips to India, exactly. that, that's what I've, I've always thought. I've just you know, I've been walking around the streets of, of Delhi uh, and Calcutta thinking, this is, this is so like Frankfurt. It is uncanny. Uncanny. <laughs> It's the same, really. It's the same. <laughs> and, and I'm glad, I'm glad as a visitor, Andy, you noticed that because, you know, we, <laughs> we, we function in a certain cold clinical sort of way. Like every time anyone thinks of India, they don't think of color, chaos, madness, a billion people. They think just leave functionality. You know, they think, <laughs> they think agility, precision, you know, just high-end design. And so Mr. Bodhi's gamble was successful because he said, like, like you pointed out, in the middle of this Germanic precision, what would be very easy to do, uh, especially when 600 million people cannot read and write, what would be easy to do is to tell them their notes are invalid, they have to go to the banks and exchange it, even if they don't have bank accounts. Um, so I think what had happened is that Mr. Modi had seen a Monty Python sketch the night before. <laughs> 
and, and any Monty Python sketch and told himself, I'm just going to enact this on the entire country. So what's <laughs> happening now is that there are people in bank queues, like you said, you know, just complete chaos. Nobody knows how much money they can withdraw. Nobody knows if their money is there or not. Um, and what's happening is now people in bank queues are doing things to get attention. Uh, yesterday, a man in Hyderabad set himself on fire after waiting for three and a half hours just for the bank manager to notice him. And I think that that is a good approach anywhere in any bank, even when there is not a run on the bank. <laughs> I feel if you've been in a bank queue for a long time and you are not getting any attention, setting yourself on fire for a little while will get attention. That's a good rule for life. <laughs> Yes. Um, yes. I mean, I've tried it in gigs. It doesn't always work. I'm reminded of, of uh, Henry VIII, Andy. Um, if you remember in 15... Um, <laughs> important... Yeah, I remember that year. Yeah, it's a That important yeah. year in history. Um, there was a shortage of, I think, uh, gold coins. So he had decided uh, that um, gold coins... There was a shortage of geese cooking geese, geese that you would cook for food, and uh, gold coins. And he decided that geese were the same value as gold coins, and that that just that became a thing across the kingdom. And uh, so I think that the rumors that are spreading is, what else may be taken away? What else may be introduced as legal tender? You know, maybe a vase, uh, pillows, and the things they may take away are shoes and pants. <laughs> And all Punjabi people, like you don't know um, precisely what might happen next. So that's, again, all good, like you'd say. It's all good. Modi has made a, a big point of trying to reduce uh, uh, corruption. Um, it, I mean, it is fascinating following Indian corruption as an, uh, an outsider, because, I mean, we, we jail our MPs over here for, you know, stealing ten or £15,000 worth of public money. And a dodgy expenses claim. I think if an Indian MP stole ten or fifteen thousand pounds worth of, of public money in India, he would be praised for saving the states about four million pounds worth of public money. I was looking at some of the recent corruptions. There was the uh, the biggest, the Indian coal allocation scam of uh, that uh, blew up in twenty twelve. That was worth over twenty billion dollars. There was a uh, the Bihar fodder scam in the the Bihar region uh, that was worth around ten billion US dollars, which involved apparently the fabrication of enormous herds of fictitious farm animals. That is my kind of corruption. It, it's amazing the imagination that goes into this. That is right, Andy. That is right because you see uh, in that that particular one, uh, the corruption was around cow fodder. Right. Uh, that corruption was around basically fecal matter from cows. Right. <laughs> um, and this is the trouble with the Western world where the Western world drives through India and they see just piles and piles of cow feces An Indian <laughs> parliamentarian sees opportunity. <laughs> and I think this is the fundamental difference. You see, one of the main problems with the Western world, and I hope they realize this, is that you have functioning systems. Functioning systems really bother us. You know, if <laughs> it happens to me when I come to your country and I stand in queue and everything's functioning and I'm, I'm going in the line and they're asking me questions, the order and everything. And it, it's a real bother because I look around and my head is doing, you know, it's an overdrive thinking there's got to be a way I can mess up this system. This is functioning <laughs> Too smoothly. There's something wrong here. I was reading also about the Uttar Pradesh elephant memorial scam from a few years ago. Yes. Um, and various articles put the value of this scam at between 9 million 
and six billion US dollars, which I assume was a misprint. But even if it is only a nine million dollar scam to cream off money from a program to put up public statues of elephants, you—that is genius. That—that that is visionary. I, I, British politicians would not even see that as an opportunity to be corrupt. I think Indian Indian corruption—they're like Spanish midfielders seeing passes that British midfielders cannot see. There was another scam in which 35 million toilets went missing. How, how do you lose the 35 million? The logistics in that are, in, are incredible. Absolutely. In, that's one of the greatest logistical achievements in human history. And you can only pity, pity the future archaeologists who in hundreds or thousands of years' time are going to come across a stash of 35 million toilets somewhere in a jungle in India and wonder what on earth had happened to human <laughs> civilization. This is why we need toilet day. <laughs> Precisely, because, you know, as they say about toilets, when you've got to go, you've got to go, <laughs> you know? And we took that literally. The toilet has to disappear. This is the thing. I mean, you guys have fantastic sculpture in your country. You have museums, right? But... But, you know, there are. if we went to Renaissance Italy, Da Vinci has, has done stuff, Rodin has done stuff. And I bet some of those popes that commissioned that are now sitting back and thinking, hold on a minute, all this is fantastic, but I made no money from this. This is really disturbing. <laughs> they were commissioned, they were built. Why? That's the thing with the elephant statues, right? How can you just build something and have it last for posterity just for the people without anyone making any money out of it? We don't see it. It just seems, in fact, the sculpture is the least important thing, right? <laughs> I think the statue of David, whatever, right? If all the people involved in that were Indian, they would go see the statue of David and would be like, can you, do you know which political party made $7 million from that? <laughs> that would be the conversation. The statue itself, some stone rubbish, we don't care. It's, that's not that important. Anyone can do that. Uh, one other bit of Indian news. Last week, uh, our Prime Minister, Theresa May, uh, she, uh, well, alleged Prime Minister, still waiting for an, an election to confirm that rumour, she went to India on a trade trip, stroke karaoke cruise, stroke belated Hindu, delete according to whether you want a fact or a post-fact, and... Uh, she refused to relax the visa rules on Indians uh, coming to coming to Britain, uh, and it is and uh, rather harder to get into Britain as a, an Indian today than it was to get into India as a British person some time ago when we would simply turn up and say, "I have a very large stick and an extremely smart uniform. I would strongly advise you to let me in. If not, I will shoot you and I will shoot your wildlife. Thank you. I'm going to shoot you and your wildlife anyway, but thank you all the same. <laughs> Thank you. This is true, Andy. This is very true. This is very true. One of the things we forget about Empire, of course, is that uh, we were just happy that anyone showed up to administer this place at all. Um, <laughs> that the idea of colonization was so shocking to us that people would actually show up and be like, we'd want to run this place. And we said, what, you want to run this? You, you want to run? Okay, sure. Yeah. I don't really know what's beyond my house, but I think there's a country. <laughs> if you can find it and you can sort of create a border and get real or whatever, you do what you want. It's fine. And I think, I think that, of course, it's changed now. We're patriotic. You know, now you, you found places um, all across. You found where the country ended. That was good. Um, most of us had no idea. You found oil and you found tea and all of that. And now, of course, you know, you got to keep some of that. That was nice. And now we, we have all of it. And... 
obviously now there's all this trade and all this outsourcing going on. And uh, the Prime Minister Theresa May, she was here and she was wearing a sari and she went to a temple and that was all nice. Um, and I think she prayed uh, to whatever gods there were that <laughs> that no one would ask her to relax the visa thing. Um, <laughs> I think in any Hindu temple, you have to give, you have to give an offering. And I think her offering was five visas for five Indian billionaires. I think that was her offering. <laughs> I, th- I think her policy was, yes, we're relaxing it. These six people can go. And I, I, I know them by name. I think that works with policy very well. You know, I, why should policy, as Donald Trump is reinventing the world, we have to ask ourselves, why does policy have to apply to everyone? If you know the five people, <laughs> it'll benefit. <laughs> why not just say Ramesh Rajesh, Mr. Tata, Mr. Ambani, you can come and anytime you want. You don't, you don't have to scan your eye. You just have to breathe heavily into the mouth of the immigration officer and just go into the country. Um, we have no other scans in place for you. The rest of you, look, I've, I've made an effort. I'm wearing a sari. I've come to a temple, but I've got nothing else. I've got no other offering for you. <laughs> Theresa May said that the UK will consider further improvements to our visa offer if, at the same time, we can step up the speed and volume of returns of Indians with no right to remain in the UK. And again, looking back at history, if we step up that speed to anything under 250 years, it would be a little bit rude. <laughs> that's true, that's true. I think, uh, you know... Um and and the exchange it would it would also lead to chaos. It'll be like the currency exchange. Like you know, Lord Clive I think is hanging around somewhere in Calcutta still, <laughs> um, and you know my cousin Vishesh is somewhere in Birmingham right now. And I think if we if we started getting into that, um, there are just too many people that have to travel too much. Just some uh, latest uh, other Indian news on the pollution crisis in uh, New Delhi, the Indian capital. Uh, Latest scientific reports show that it is now healthier to breathe inside an erupting volcano than on the streets of Delhi. Doctors have said that you'll be better off filling your lungs with cement than attempting to find oxygen in the Indian capital. Whilst the government of the planet Venus has issued a warning to all Venusians to wear special face masks when visiting Delhi. And uh, another scientist has claimed that if you cut out a zebra's lungs and leave those lungs exposed in the air in Delhi for just 30 seconds, that zebra would die. So it is, it is that bad. <laughs> there were some tourists as part of the Theresa May trade delegation, Andy, that went to see the Taj Mahal. And there was so much, uh, basically, brown gaseous substance in front of the Taj Mahal that they couldn't see it for two days. And... <laughs> And I think, again, again, I think that, that the world has wrongly portrayed us. Um, I, I personally think that if you have the most beautiful monument in the world, it should not be easy to see. You've got to earn it. And I think that, that, that you should, you, if, if as a result of that, you need to pollute the entire atmosphere <laughs> and kill about 12 million people to make something a little more enticing, then why not? <laughs> Uh, before we, we go for this week, uh, Anuvab, as our rest of the world correspondent, perhaps you could update us with how the rest of the planet has reacted to the election of, of Donald Trump to the post of King of America. Yes. Um, you know, the rest of the world, I think, are 
are quite surprised that basically that a, 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 a large joint family will now be running America. It's a fresh start, really, because they're also quite amused by the fact that here, here some speeches have been given where the where Donald Trump has acknowledged that he has no idea where the rest of the world is. Um, <laughs> the other day he said that I will be talking to Saudi Arabia, which is the capital of the Middle East. <laughs> and he said he was going to renege on a treaty with Nigeria and other South Africans. <laughs> and so I think oh. the rest of the world is hoping that they'll show up in Washington or New York or wherever Trump chooses to live and say pretty much anything about their country. <laughs> without it having be fact-checked. So I, I can imagine like a bunch of people from Thailand showing up and saying, we are massive exporters of shoes and orangutans. <laughs> and could we strike a special trade deal? And then something would happen because, because there would be no facts or any basis. Um, and, you know, Brazilians could show up there and say, we are not big with coffee and football. You've been misinformed. <laughs> like people could say pretty much anything about their country. And I think that is a fresh start, Andy. Uh, well, we will be covering these stories and others in a, in a new section on the Bugle uh, in future weeks, as suggested by at Endless Coast Crew on Twitter, uh, that we should have a Bugle spinoff called The Trumpet, in which we cover Mr. <laughs> Trump. So there will be a trumpet section in future bugles, not not all future bugles. I want to be able to sleep in at least some weeks, but we will be charting the happy story of Donald, the magic president, as he takes four years out from his regular gig of tycooning the shit out of anything he looks at and hating everything, whilst uh, waiting to be enveloped by the fiery bowels of hell for a quick fun stint as the world's most powerful person. So uh, look out for the trumpet section in in future weeks. <laughs> Sport now, and we at the Bugle have never shied away from covering the sporting events that other leading media outlets in the world fear to cover, and this week is no exception. A huge event this week, heading to its conclusion now. It's the uh, Bullenschlaf Scheitman Memorial Trophy, the Ryder Cup of corporate jargon, uh, reaching its final stages. So it's over to San Francisco to join the Bugle's marginal sports correspondent, Wohl, live at the Drivel Dome. Wohl. Are you there? Yes, Andy. Much excitement here at the Drivel Dome. America have hit the front in this hugely significant event. Uh, of course, in this increasingly globalised globe, communication is increasingly the means with which we use to uh, communicate with each other, of course. And today is, in every sense, no exception. The real standard bearers here laying it out for us. And America has taken a potentially unassailable lead as they seek to retain the old uh, Bullenschlaf uh, Scheidman Corp Jog Trophy for the uh, 18th consecutive time. Young comms exec Curlane Granati, big star from the Jacksonville Jibber franchise, made the key play this morning in the freestyle exhortation discipline, telling his teammates that it was up to them not only to pump the hydrogen into the Hindenburg, but to make damn sure it catches fire while the cameras are rolling. Well, for Europe, young Spanish star Anna Granita Malfaniana hit back by claiming she was ready to toast the apricot even if no one else was and barked in some impressively uncertain terms that if you want to put your puppies in the post bag these days, you've simply got to be prepared to douse grandma in jam and let the wasps do the work. Because as her old boss used to say, she said, no granny is immortal and there's no point firing up the crematorium for just one corpse. Did she make herself clear, she asked, and no, replied the judges, she did not, and awarded Malfaniana a score of 9.5 plus a bonus jog for outright incomprehensibility, super effort from the young Spanish star, but uh, is it going to be enough? It doesn't look that way 
Andy, but if I can interrupt us both here, I think now we can hear Team GB skipper Rolf Platters of the Birmingham Buzzwords. He's taking the mic now for Europe for what could be some decisive business balderdash. Listen, get the right people doing the right jobs. You don't make Picasso work in the paint shop. And if you don't have a round peg for a round hole, get a massive square peg and a digger. Look, not everyone is on board and ready to surf this dolphin, I get that. We've got to embrace it. We've got to embrace the changing global globe. And as my old boss used to say, if you don't like doing a school run, don't kidnap someone else's children. So the way I sit, if you're barking up the wrong tree, the cat's going to shit on your strawberries. So bark up all the trees, shoot the cat when it meows, and buy a fruit from the supermarket. Am I right? Well, Andy, yeah, as you can hear, super effort from Platter to get Europe right back in it. And clearly the judges, they think he's talking out the bottom of the well there because that is an 8.7. So still all to play for here. Well, that uh, brings us to the end of uh, this week's Bugle. Next week, uh, the, the email address uh, will have been set up as helloBuglers at thebuglepodcast.com. Uh, so do send your emails into that. Keep them preferably under the 3,000 word essays that you seem to have started doing in, previous, uh, in its previous incarnation at the info address, which is being uh, decommissioned. Um, next week, we'll feature Helen Zaltzman as uh, in the Bugle co host. Hot seat sister of the world-renowned cricket writer Andy Zaltzman. Uh, we will have uh, more on on Brexit and uh, whatever the hell is the government is riffing out in its uh, elongated piece of improvisational performance art and uh, a retrospective f- eulogy for Ferdinand Marcos, who appears to have been uh, given like a sort of a hero's funeral uh, decades after his death in the Philippines, which is another country that appears to be going. Slightly round the spout. So um, that is coming next week. Anuvab, thanks very much for your uh, your glorious uh, bugle debut. You'll be back in December uh, to join us again. Uh, so do keep an eye on everything that is happening in the world between between now and then. Um, are there any uh, any shows you've got coming up that you'd like to plug to our listeners or anything else? Well, um, thank you for having me, Andy. Thank you. And, you know, given I have such a narrow, specific focus to keep my eye on... <laughs> I think I, I think I'll do it with as I do with my Indian Germanic precision. So there's there's that. Um, yeah, uh, I have a thing with Amazon that's coming up on December 16th. They're recording a special in Mumbai. Um, other than that, I hope that the country and I will remain penniless as we've discussed the next time we speak in December. Uh, Anuvab Pal, thanks very much for joining us. Also next week, um, well, the uh, nominations for the Bad Sex Award for uh, awful writing about uh, thrugulations in contemporary fiction. The nominations have been announced, and we have an exclusive extract from uh, a, a long-awaited literary sequel that many Bugle fans will be very excited to hear. That will be coming up in next week's show. Thanks very much for listening, and we will speak to you next week. The Bugle is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, made possible with great support from our founding sponsors, The Knight Foundation and MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork. Goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. 
In this series, we discuss Lime Bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now. <laughs> 